Welcome to this week's Rashi Shir, brought to you from the Bet Midrash of Mizrahi in Melbourne, Australia. Okay, you join us not in the Bet Midrash of Mizrahi, at least not in the physical Bet Midrash, but we can say this is the ever-growing um, virtual Bet Midrash. And this is the regular Rashi Shi'ur, where we go through each comment of Rashi and try to add some degree, extra degree of understanding what Rashi's problem is and what Rashi's answer is. And we're on Bereshit, Perak Yudbet, so we're in the Sedra of Lech Lecha. And uh, in the last couple of weeks, we've just started to understand Abraham's early motions inside Eretz Yisrael. And now we get to Pasukayim. And we Hi, read Pasukayim, but he's doing it too. Everyone there? It might be a good idea for people to mute themselves unless they want to speak. That seems to be good Zoom etiquette. But this is a conference you can speak to. You can, but if people are speaking sort of over each other, then, then it gets a bit uh, difficult for other people to listen to. So it might be a good idea for people to mute themselves unless they want to make a contribution, in which case they're very welcome to speak. Oh, we've just lost. I'll be known. Okay, so in Pasuk Zion, we read by Yera Hashem El Avram, Hashem appeared to Avraham, Vayomer, and he said, Lazaracha etain etaaretzazot, to your descendants I will give this land, Vayiven Sham Mizbeach Lashem, and he built there a Mizbeach for Hashem, Hanire Elav, who appeared to him. And Rashi has not much to say on that verse. He says on the words, Vayiven Sham Al Basurot Hazera, on the news, the good news of the descendants, Al Basurot Eretz Yisrael, and on the good news of Eretz Yisrael. And Rashi's question seems to be, if the Torah tells us that Abraham built an altar, why did Abraham build an altar? And the, the normative reason for building an altar for Al Tanakh is to say thank you, to offer a korban toda, to offer a thanksgiving offering. And hence we have to know what is Avram saying thank you for. Now, um, one answer is Hashem has just said to him, I will give you Eretz Hazot. So it's obvious, it's natural, but he's saying thank you for Eretz Hazot. But Rashi points out that actually the blessing that Ah Hashem gave him was twofold. When he says, to your descendants, I am giving this land, then he's obviously saying there are going to be descendants as well as they're going to get the land. So that's why Rashi says that Abraham is saying thank you for two things, the Basurat Azera and the Basurat Eretz Yisrael, the promise of the children and the promise of Eretz Yisrael. Now we could ask, Hasn't Abraham already been promised children? After all, in Perak Pasuk Aleph, Hashem said, Go to the land which I will show you. And then in Pasuk Bet, I will make you a great nation. Let me just pause to say, hello, Zoe. Thank you for joining us. Uh, you've just joined us. So let me tell you, you it would be helpful to have a Chumish Bereshit with Rashi. And we are on Perak Yudbet, and we're concentrating on Pasuk Zion. Thank you. Okay, we're very nice to see you there. Even though you should be in Eretz Israel, as we all should be, but you should be in particular. But it's nice to see you here at the ship. Okay, so um, I said that in Pasuk Zion, Rashi says that Abraham is saying thank you for the promise of children. But wasn't he promised children all the way back in Pasuk Bet? And the answer to this question is, Rashi on Pasuk Bet said that the reason Hashem promised him a great nation was only because when people travel, one of the things they are restricted in doing is having children. So because Hashem was asking Abraham to travel to the land of Canaan, so according to Rashi, he promised him that there will be no loss of children and no loss of money and no loss of renown. All those things were in Rashi's comment on Pasuk Bet. So that wasn't really a, uh, an absolute promise of children. It was just a promise that the journey won't stop you having children. But here in Pasuk Zion, 
Hashem appears to him and says, to your children I will give this land. That, says Rashi, is a brand new, uh, fully self-contained promise of children. And that's why Abraham builds an altar to say thank you for those things. Okay, now we move on to Pasuk Chet, which says, misham hahara, um, and he uprooted from there to the mountain, Mikedem lebet el, from the east of Bet el, Vayet ahalo, and he pitched his tent, Bet el miyam, with Bet el on the west, Ha'ai mikedem, and I in the east, Vayiven shom izbeach lahashem, and he built there an altar for Hashem, just like we saw in Pasuk Zion, except now in Pasuk Chet, Vayikra b'shem Hashem, and he called out in the name of Hashem. So we have a bit of geography in this verse. And I have to say, this verse has always troubled me, but I think, I think I've got it now. Um, in my uh, primary school that I taught at two schools ago, um, uh, part of the curriculum was to learn this verse. And I remember seeing little kids in, in year two struggling over this verse and struggling over the geography in this verse. But I think, I think I've got it. Anyway, let's start with Rashi. Rashi's first of all says on the word, misham ahola. He uprooted from there his tent. Now, why does Rashi have to say he uprooted his tent? So this, I think, is a straightforward grammatical piece that the word vayatek, the way it's vowelized, needs an object. He uprooted something. Now, if it had been vowelized differently, um, if it had been vayatak, according to what I'm reading here, and I'm not uh, showing off any great knowledge of diktuk, but if it had been vayatak, it could have been read as he uprooted himself. In other words, as a, uh, an intransitive verb. He, he, he did all the uprooting, as it were, for himself. But that's not how it's vowelized. That's not the Nikud. The Nikud is the take, which must have an object. So he uprooted something. The problem is the verse doesn't tell us what he uprooted. So Rashi adds the word ahala at that point to say he uprooted his tent. Then it says, on the, when Rashi says on the words, now Rashi goes on a little bit, a bit longer than Rashi in his short comment normally does. And he says, in the east of Bet-El. So it turns out that Bet-El is in his west. And that's what it says later on in the verse, Bet-El mayam, Bet-El on the west. And the problem is this. If you look at the words, take misham ha-hara mikedem le-bet-el. How do you, what is the relationship between ha-hara and mikedem le-bet-el? Now, I've just noticed actually the trot, the note separates the two, and which leads to the interpretation perhaps that Rashi is rejecting. It could, you could read it as, he uprooted from there to the mountain, from the east of Bet-el. In other words, he came from the east of Bet-el. But Rashi says, um, but that's not what it means. It means, on the words Mikedem Lebetel, he says, Bermizrach shel Betel. It is in the east of Betel. What is in the east of the Betel? The mountain. The mountain is east of Betel. So the words, Vayatake Misham Hahara Mikedem Lebetel, Rashi wants you to realize that that means he uprooted, brackets his tent from there to the mountain, and the mountain was on the east of Betel. Not that he came from the east of Betel. And then it all fits nicely. If he's moving to the mountain, which is to the east of Bet-El, then, as the pastor continues to say, Bet-El is in the west. If he's to the east of Bet-El, Bet-El is in the west, as Rashi says there. So, Nimseit Bet-El Memaravo, Vahushanema, and that's what it says, Bet-El Miyam. And Rashi needs to be a bit more um, descriptive than usual in order for you to understand exactly what is the east of what and what is the west of what. Then, by the way, I've asked people to mute themselves. Thank you very much. But please feel free to unmute yourself if you want to make any contribution as we go along. Otherwise, I'm sort of just talking to myself. Um, okay. Then Rashi says on the word ohalo. Now, it's interesting. In the, in the Rashi's words, he spelt it alaf he lamad vav. But in the Pasuk, it's alaf he lamad he. And that's exactly the point that Rashi wants to refer to now. The word in the, in the Chumash is alaf he lamad he. But there's a cholam on the lamad, so it's read as aholo, as if it had been spelt alaf he lamad vav. So it really is a ketiv and kari. The way it's written, 
If you didn't have the vowels, you'd think it says ahala, meaning her tent. But the vowels tell you it's to be read as ahalo, meaning his tent. So what does Rashi say? Rashi comments when he, see, he puts in the word with a vav, because that's how it's read, ahalo. But he says ahala with a hey, kativ. That's how it's written. So why does it say her tent when it's read as his tent? And the answer is, at first he pitched his wife's tent, her tent, and afterwards he pitched his tent. So that explains two things. Number one, it explains why it says ahala, but it's read as ahalo. And number two, it tells us about the character of Avraham Avinu, that obviously he took care for his wife's needs first, He's not going to leave her standing around in the cold while he gets his tent ready, but it tells us he gets her tent ready first. Then it says, Rashi says, He prophesied um, He prophesied that in the future his children will stumble because of the sin of Achan. And he davened there for them. Now, who was Achan, by the way? Achan was a soldier in the time of Yehoshua, who broke the rules and took some spoil from Yericho, which he'd been told not to. And as a result, as a consequence, the people were punished. Interestingly, there was an element of collective punishment, because the next battle that they fought at Ai, um, was not the normal total uh, victory without any casualties, but there were, I think, 36 casualties at the time. And it was traced back to the fact that Achan had taken some stuff from Yericho. Now, so uh, Rashi tells us that Abraham had the prophecy that his children were going to stumble in Ai because of the sin of Achan. Now, you might recall if you were here last week, or if you, even if you weren't here last week, you might recall that when Abraham arrived in Shechem, in Pasuk Vav, Rashi there says on the words, Admakom Shechem, lehitpalel el b'nei Yaakov k'shiavoi hilachem b'shechem. He came to Shechem to daven for his great-grandsons, Shimon and Levi, because they would be fighting in Shechem. Now, the reason Rashi said that there is probably the same as Rashi says it here, over there in Pasuk Vav, the question is, why does the Torah mention that he came to Shechem, if not because of some significant event that happened in Shechem? So similarly here, why does the Torah mention that he pitches his tent to the east of Ai? Why do we need to know that? Answers Rashi, because there's a significant event which is going to happen in Ai. I, there's only one. That's when the, there was a battle in Tav Yoshua, which wasn't totally successful. And now that's being mentioned, the place Ai is being being mentioned in the context of Abraham, what's Abraham got to do with I? Ah, it must be that he has some nevuah about what's going to happen in I, and he davens there for the sake of the people who were going to be, who were going to, as it were, stumble there. Turns out, I think, if you compare Pasuk Zion and Pasuk Het, that Rashi says the Mizbeach sometimes suffers, uh, serves two different functions. In Pasuk Zion, the Mizbeach was for Moshe, sorry, for Abraham to say thank you, and in Pasuk Het, the Mizbeach is there for Abraham to daven. And it just occurs to me, and I didn't actually see this anywhere, but maybe this explains the last three words of Pasuk Chet. Because in the Mizbeach in Pasuk Chet, unlike the Mizbeach in Pasuk Zion, we read, Vayikra B'Shem Hashem. He called out in the name of Hashem. And it just occurs to me, and I think this is so obvious, this must be right, that Rashi reads that as davening. Yeah, others might read it as a Kira program. He calls out in the name of Hashem. He tells everyone about Hashem. Others do read it that way. But it seems to me that Rashi is reading it as that's davening. Rashi actually uses the word vehit palel. Where does Rashi see that he's davening, which he didn't see in Pasuk Zion when Abraham also built him his Beach? Answer, vayikra b'shem Hashem means that Abraham is davening. What's he davening for? Well, why have we mentioned I? and put those two, two questions together, he's davening for his descendants who will fight in I. One more thing to say on this. Um, last week, we asked the question, so what's the big deal about Shechem? Why does Abraham go to Shechem and daven there for his great-grandsons? There's lots of things in Jewish history which he could daven for. But in a sense, Shechem was the beginning of the conquest of Eretz Israel. The first time Jews fought for a part of Eretz Israel 
was Shimon and Levi who fought to capture Shechem. Now, of course, there was a, some people a backstory there. There was the whole um, kidnapping and, and worse of Dina, their sister. But at the end of the day, they fought and they conquered part of Eretz Israel. So it's appropriate that Abraham, who is in these few verses um, learning about how he's going to be, his descendants are going to inherit Eretz Israel. So he davens at the first time that they're fighting for Eretz Israel. Now that also connects to what's going on in I, because I was part of the battle for the conquest of Eretz Israel, not by Shimon and Levi, but by the entire Jewish nation under Yehoshua. And when Yahushua led the people to fulfill the promise to Abraham, i.e. when the people will acquire the land of Israel, they had trouble. They had trouble at Ai, and they suffered casualties. So it's appropriate that while Abraham is thanking Hashem for the promise of Eretz Israel, he davens for the Jews who will fall while they're fighting for that promise to be realized. Okay, any questions? No. Nope. We'll move on to Pasuk Tech. So we'll translate it as, as Rashi does, or Rashi has in mind. Abraham journeyed, going and journeying. Hanegba, to the Negev. Now, why Holech v'Nosea are both forms of, the, both in the form of the infinitive. Technically, they are infinitive absolute. Now, Rashi actually doesn't make the point here, but he often does. Uh, when you have verbs in that grammatical form, and he compares them to shamor v'zachar. What is shamor v'zachar? Shamor v'zachar are the two things we have to do about Shabbat. In the first of the Aserita, first version of the Aserita Dibrot in Yitro, it says, zachar et yom Shabbat, remember the day of Shabbat. And in the second um, uh, or Decalogue, the second repair, the repetition of the Aserita Dibrot in Parshat ve'etchanan, we read shamor et uh, yom Shabbat guard or preserve the day of Shabbat. And both those verbs, Zachar and Shamar, are in the infinitive form. And Rashi understands, he doesn't quite say it explicitly, but he, he alludes to it more than once, that that means it's an act of continual action. Be remembering Shabbat. Remember Shabbat all the time, not just on Shabbat, but remember Shabbat the whole week, which means preparing for Shabbat. And similarly, Shamar, be guarding Shabbat. It's a continual action. So here we have Holech he's continually going and journeying. It's an ongoing process. It's not a one-off journey, it's an ongoing process. That's the grammatical form of Holech V'Nosoah. Hence Rashi's comment, Holech V'Nosoah leprakim, at intervals, bit by bit, Yoshev kan chodesh o yoter, he stops here for a month or more, and then he journeys from there, and he pitches his tent in another place. Now, this is Rashi's understanding of what it means to be journeying. If he didn't stop, that wouldn't be be journeying. That would be he journeyed. It would be a one-off journey from A to B. If he only stopped momentarily, like for a moment or even a day or two, that's not called stopping. That is um, that's just like uh, stopping for the night on your journey, but the same journey carries on the following morning. What is called stopping so that you're journeying, stop, journeying, stop, journeying, stop? That's why Rashi says a month. Halachically, one doesn't acquire some sort of status as a, uh, a dweller in an area until a month has passed. There's various halachic ramifications of that. One of them, uh, and I'm not paskening, but in Chutzlaret, outside of Israel, when one moves into a new house, one has 30 days before you put up the mezuzah. It's a good idea to put it up before that, because only after 30 days are you, as it were, permanently in that house. Before 30 days, you might be moving on. Incidentally, just by the way, that doesn't apply in Eretz Israel, because in Eretz Israel, as soon as you move into a house, you're there. You're stuck, or rather, you're permanently there. Jews in Chutzlaret are never quite settled, but in Israel, you're settled immediately. Nice idea. Anyway, so we see that's just one example of how when you have to be somewhere in a month, for a month, that's called being there. So if you're there for less than a month, you're not really there. So if you go from A to B and you stop for 29 days in a place in the middle, that's really still one continuous journey. So putting all this together, Rashi spells out that what Abraham was doing was going bit by bit. And that's that's going continually and journeying continually. So that must be, but he journeyed, stopped, journeyed, stopped. 
and the stop must be a month or more. And that's why Rashi says explicitly, Chodesh o Yoter. Then Rashi says on the words um, Hanegba, which means to the Negev or to the south. So Rashi is bothered. Why? Uh, what does it mean that it's words Hanegba? And why was Abraham going to the south? And he says, Vacholma Asav Hanegba. All his journeys were to the Negev. Lalechet Ladroma Shel Eretz Yisrael. He's going to the south of Eretz Yisrael. It means he's journeying in a particular direction. Not well. Um, uh, you'll see in just a moment, but he doesn't mean the Negev as we understand it. But he means he's translating Negba basically as south, and he's telling us that this this the succession of journeys, stopping for a month and carrying on, was in a particular direction. That's what the Torah says. So Rashi's now explaining that was to the south of Eretz Yisrael, Yerushalayim. And this is in the direction of Yerushalayim. So first, the next line is to give a little bit of geography. That Yerushalayim is in the portion that was taken by the tribe of Yehuda when the land was divided between all the tribes. The Droma shall Eretz Yisrael, who took his portion in the south of Eretz Yisrael. As we read in Sefer Yeshua in Perak uh, Tetvav, that Yehuda's portion was in the south. And we know Yerushalayim was in the south. Sorry, we know Yerushalayim was in Yehuda's portion. So that means that Yerushalayim was in the south, which was, now we understand, that was Abraham's destination. As it says, Laha Hamaria Shehi Nachalato. He's going to Ha Hamaria, which we know is in Yerushalayim which is his inheritance. Now, the word inheritance is a little bit problematic here because of all Eretz Israel was his inheritance. We've had that stressed. But of Eretz Israel, we all know how this story ends, and it ends with the building of the Bet Mikdash, which is the holiest place. We also know that long before that, Abraham goes to Ha Maria because that's where he gets closest to HaKadosh Baruch Hu by uh, doing the Akedah there. So Ha Maria is the epicenter, not literally, not geographically, but um, philosophically um, of Eretz Israel, and that's where Abraham is going. Now, by the way, why does, Abraham, why does Rashi have to go through this bit about Shevet Yehuda? That um, Israel is in the south, sorry, Yerushalayim is in the south of Eretz Israel, which is in the portion of Yehuda who took his portion in the south. Now, I think this, this tells us about two things about Rashi's style. Um, number one, Rashi doesn't refer to maps. Rashi doesn't have in front of him a map of Eretz Israel. Um, and he doesn't quote a map. The Ramban, who by the way, lived in Eretz Israel, and when he wrote his parish, he was living in Eretz Israel. He, he also doesn't have a map in his parish, but he, he speaks about the geography based on his knowledge of the geography of Eretz Israel, and he takes it as a fact. Rashi, as far as I know, whenever he quotes something about the geography of Eretz Israel, proves it from a text. So he doesn't use a map, he uses sources. And he will prove something about the geography of the land of Israel by referring to somewhere in Tanakh where it's described. So Rashi is bothered by why is Abraham going to the south? And Rashi knows the answer. The answer is that he's going to Yerushalayim. But how do we know that Yerushalayim is in the south of Eretz Israel? Now, we all know, because Baruch Hashem, we, we are familiar with the map of Israel, and even more fortunate than that, we visit Israel, and we have the map of Israel in our heads. Rashi has never been to Eretz Israel. His readers have never been to Eretz Israel. And of course, in the medieval times, they didn't have maps as we have today. And the ones they did were in no way reliable about putting things exactly in the right place. So, but that doesn't bother Rashi, because Rashi says, I don't need a map. What do I need? Sefer Yoshua. And Sefer Yoshua tells me that Yehuda took his chalek, his portion in the south of Eretz Israel. And I also know that Yerushalayim is in the chalek of Yehuda. We know that from many, many sources in Tanakh. That's what I need to prove that Yerushalayim is in the south of Eretz Israel. And that's what he does. Okay. Um, I keep stopping to ask for questions or comments because uh, you're all sitting there in silence and I feel like I'm just sort of uh, talking to people in silence. Uh, can you nod or something if this is all going well or, or put your thumbs up or, or something like that? Okay, there's two nods and two thumbs up. And as for um, Tally and Sam and Daniel, I can't even see you. So I'll just assume that you're um, shaking your heads, you're nodding your heads even though I can't see you. 
We will carry on into Pasuk Yud. So by the way, we've passed a big pay in the text, which means there's like at the end of a paragraph or even more than that, like the end of a chapter. Uh, and now we move on to new things. Up till now, the previous nine Pasukim have all been about Avraham journeying from where he started in Haran at Hashem's command and moving around a little bit in Eretz Yisrael. And now what ha something happens to him while he's in Eretz Yisrael. So it's like a new episode. And what happens is, Pasuk Yud, Vayhi Ra'av Ba'aretz. There was a famine in the land. Vayered Avram Mitzrayma. And Abraham went down to Egypt, Lagor Sham, to dwell there. Ki chaveit Ra'av Ba'aretz. Because the famine was heavy in the land. Now, um, I'm sorry my WhatsApp keeps pinging me, but you can hear that, but I can't turn off that without turning off all the noises on the computer. Um, Rashi says, Ra'av ba'aretz, ba'oto ha'aretz lavada, in that land alone. Why does Rashi, in other words, outside of Eretz Israel, it wasn't a famine. Now, Rashi says this for at least- Can you tell us what parasha you're reading, please? I'm sorry, I'm reading Perak Yud Bet, Pasuk Yud, and I'm reading Rashi on it as well. Okay. okay? Thanks. Thank you. So in uh, Rashi says, the famine was Ba'aretz, in that land alone. And why does Rashi say that? I would suggest two reasons. One, for the story to make sense, because Abraham is in a place where there's no food. So he goes to a place where there is food. And that is somewhere else. He's going to Egypt. Now, it only makes sense if there was food in Egypt, when, even then when there wasn't food in Israel. How can there be food in Egypt if there's a famine? So Rashi says the famine was localized, the famine was in Israel and not elsewhere. Hence, it makes sense that Abraham goes to Egypt. But there's also a textual point, which is the um, comets under the bet on Ba'aretz, which means in the land. And Rashi is very, very strict. If it says the land, it means a particular land. If it says the lad, it means a particular lad. That is a very common feature of Rashi. So if it says the land, it means a particular land. And which particular land is that? Well, it's the one that's just been talked about. So Ba'aretz means there was a famine in the land to the exclusion of other lands. And that's what Rashi saying. And then Rashi carries on to say this famine, Lanasato, to test him. If he, Avraham, will literally think, in other words, will question, will criticize the words of HaKadosh Baruch that Hashem told him to go to the land of Canaan, and now he entices him to leave it. Rashi uh, refers elsewhere to the 10 tests. We all know there were 10 tests. And for Rashi, this is one of the 10 tests. And the way he phrases the test is um, that Abraham would perhaps, if he failed the test, as it were, question, criticize, complain about the words of Hashem. Hashem who told him to go to Israel, and now Hashem who encourages him to leave. I just want to say for a moment, about a, uh, a famous machloket here between Rashi and Ramban. So normally in this year, I try to stick to Rashi because if we get stuck on other Purushim, we, we'd never get anywhere. But here, I think it's a very important uh, uh, issue to help understand Rashi by comparing him to the Ramban. The Ramban famously says, at this time, Abraham Abraham sinned a great sin by leaving Eretz Yisrael. According to Ramban, Abraham at this point failed the test, as the Ramban understands it. The test was stay in Eretz Israel, even in the famine, because Hashem has told you to be in Eretz Israel. And Abraham fails, and he does a big sin. There are some um, uh, who uh, say we can't understand this Ramban, because we can't understand how the Ramban could be saying that Abraham sinned. I'm happy to follow the line of Rav Hirsch and others who say, look, the Torah doesn't hide the faults of our great leaders. It presents them as human beings. And we learn from them mistakes and all. And the Ramban says that Abraham made a mistake. Rashi doesn't. Rashi understands the test very differently. 
Rashi understands, and he says explicitly, the test was, can Hashem do something that doesn't make sense without Abraham questioning it? And that, says Rashi, is the test. The test was Abraham is put in this position where he's got to do something that's very, very strange. He's got to go against what Hashem has previously said. And the test is, would he question Hashem's word? And he passes the test because he doesn't question Hashem's word. It seems for the Ramban that leaving Eretz Israel would have been, would have been such a great test. But for Rashi, leaving Eretz Israel, that's not the test. The test is understanding Hashem's word when it doesn't make sense. That's similar to what Rashi says at the time of the Akedah, when we get there in uh, several months' time, probably not more than several months' time, um, at the end of the next parasha, parasha Ve'era. Um, and there, Rashi says explicitly that Abraham was bothered by the contradiction between Hashem saying, you're going to have a son called Yitzchak, who will be the ancestor of the Jewish people, and Hashem saying, please offer Yitzchak up as a sacrifice. And Avram says, I was bothered by this, but the great passing of the test is that he didn't raise the question until he had the answer. Look there in Perak Kafbet, um, and look at Rashi there, and you'll see what I mean. Similarly, I think Rashi's saying something similar here, that the test which Abraham passed was, can you deal with Hashem when Hashem doesn't make sense? And by the way, I think this is a very, very important Muslim lesson for us all that there are things that happen that to us, we don't understand why, both in terms of our experience around us and in terms of what the text says. We don't understand why Hashem tells us to do this or do that. It goes against our sensibilities. It doesn't make sense for us. And our test is to do that nevertheless. And that's exactly the way Rashi phrases what was the test for Abraham. Can he pass the test of being given apparent contradictory information by Hashem and not question it. Hello, Dave, thank you for joining us. So we're learning Bereshit Perit Yud Bet, and we've uh, on Pasuk Yud, we've just covered Pasuk Yud. And now we will come on to Pasuk Yud Aleph. And there's a lot to say on Pasuk Yud Aleph. And it says like this, And it was, when, they, when he came near to come to Egypt, the Yoma El Sarai, and he said to Sarai, Ishto, his wife, Hine na yadati. Now, I'm going to translate this um, in one way, and maybe we'll change it later. And he says, Behold na, as in now, now I know, or I have known, ki isha yafat at, that you are a woman of beautiful appearance. And then in Pasuk Yud Bet, I'll just say in advance, because to make it make sense, he says, when the Egyptians will see you, it'll be a problem because they will want to take you away and we're going to do something about it. So Rashi's got a lot to say on Hinei na yadati ki isha yafet mara'at. Behold, now I know, or I have known, that you are a woman of beautiful appearance. So Rashi says, Midrash Agada, sorry, Hinena Yadati, there is a Midrash. Now, usually when Rashi quotes Pshat and Midrash, he quotes the Pshat first, although we keep seeing instances where he doesn't, but I think generally speaking, he quotes the simple, literal, if you like, the straightforward meaning of the text first, and so then he quotes the Midrash. Here he quotes the Midrash first, he's actually going to quote two different Midrashim, and then he's going to go into the Pshat, and we'll talk about the order, and we'll talk about why he needs three different approaches. So the first is, Midrash Agada, Ad Akshav Lo Hikir Ba. Until now, he didn't recognize in her, i.e. didn't recognize the beauty in her, Mitoch Tzniyot Shebishnehem. Because of the Tzniyot, of the, what we translate as modesty, but it's not quite the right word, between them. The Akshav Al Yidei Maaseh Hikir Ba. And now, because of a, uh, something that happened, he recognized it in her. He recognized her beauty. So what we're saying is that the relationship between Abraham and Sarah, who'd been married for a long time, was on such a level that he didn't, how can I put this without getting it the wrong way around? He didn't, he wasn't aware, he wasn't filled with the knowledge of her beauty. Um, 
the way they related to each other and the way she conducted herself meant that her beauty was not obvious. So people point out that, of course, there is a halacha that says before a man marries a woman, he has to look at her, he has to check that he likes what he sees. And Abraham, based on the idea that he kept all the halacha long before it was given, would have done that as well. But that was a long time ago. And the relationship had evolved since then. So he wasn't looking at her constantly all day and he wasn't aware of her beauty. Interestingly, I'm not quite sure why, Rashi doesn't spell out what was the ma'aser, what was the act which let him know of her beauty. Says the Midrash, which Rashi is quoting, that when they were on their journey to Egypt, they went across a river and Abraham looked down and he saw his reflection, or rather he saw her reflection in the river. And that's why having looked at the reflection, he became aware of her beauty. That's suggestion one. Suggestion two is another explanation. That through the, it's the normal way for everyone that through the burden of a journey, through the tircha, the trouble of journeying, Adam mitbaze, a person gets disgraced, a person looks a bit schlocky. And the more you go on a journey, the more messy you get. But this one, Aisara, remained in her beauty. So he sees the beauty, which he knew about before, but he now sees how, how um, deep goes the beauty, that it doesn't wear away with the normal troubles of a journey like everyone else does. And then Rashi says, Upshuto shal mikra. And then he gives the simple explanation. So I'll pause a minute before we get to the simple explanation. Let's understand why he needs two Midrashic explanations. Why is one not sufficient? Now, this is a question we always ask when Rashi brings more than one explanation. What is deficient about one where, by which he needs it to be made up in the other? So what's suggested is as follows, that based on the first um, explanation, that he saw her beauty, and as the Midrash, although not Rashi, the Midrash says he saw it reflected in the water, the words hinenaya dati doesn't really fit. Behold now I know, it should say, behold now I have seen hinena reiti, but it doesn't say hinena reiti, which implies it's not because of some particular moment. Hence we go to the second explanation, which says yadati I have known, in other words I've known for quite a while that you are beautiful, I've been aware of that, but only now do I know the nature of that beauty. In which case we do get the word yodea is correct, unlike the first explanation, which should have been reiti, I have seen. The second explanation has the right verb, I'm aware of your beauty, but we have the wrong tense, the wrong tense, because what it should say is hinena ani yodea, behold now, I now know of your beauty. If he, he's only become aware of the beauty, because they're on a journey and she hasn't uh, become less beautiful on the journey. So it's not Yodati, which implies I knew in the past. I knew at a previous event sometime in the past. It's not even imperfect. It's a perfect term, which means it happened a long time or sometime previously. So the tense of Yodati doesn't quite fit the second explanation. So according to the first explanation, you've got a problem because it's the wrong verb. According to the second explanation, you've got a problem because it's the wrong tense. That says the Maskil David, which is the go-to place for answering these questions, that says why Rashi needs the two explanations of the, of the two Midrashim. But he also needs a Pshat. And then he says, Ubshutor Shom Mikra. He says, uh, the simple meaning of the text is, Hinei na higia hasha'ah Behold, now the time has come to worry about your beauty. And he goes on to say, Yadati ze yamim rabim. I have known this for a long time. Ki that you are a beautiful person. And now we come amongst people who are black and ugly. Achechem shel kushim. They are the brothers of Ethiopians. Velo isha yafeh. And they don't, they're not accustomed for a beautiful woman. Now, by the way, I think this is as politically incorrect as it sounds. I think it is saying that for Rashi, um, he 
presumes that for people who are descendants of Shem to be mixing amongst people in Africa, the people in Africa are going to regard the people who are white as intrinsically more attractive than themselves who are black. I can find no more politically correct explanation of this Rashi. I think that's what he's saying. But let's go back to, um, forget the uh, political correctness or incorrectness for a moment. Why is Rashi saying what he's saying? He's reading Hinei Yadati quite differently than he did before. Before, in the two Midrashic explanations, where you go for one, that he now saw that she was beautiful, or two, he now realized she was beautiful, it, the Yadati goes with the Na. Hinei Na, behold now, Yadati, I know, or I have known, which is a little bit problematic, but I have known. And it's now, now something has happened that has made me know. Hinei Na, behold now, Yadati, I know. According to the Pshat, that's not how you read it. And Rashi spells out, Yadati, I have known for a long time. Rashi says, Yamim Rabim, I have known for many days. So Hinei Na doesn't mean now I know, but now we've got a problem. And then Rashi explains what the problem is. So Hinei Na, behold now, semicolon. Yadati ki ishayafet mara'at, I know, I've always known that you're a beautiful woman, but now, um, going into Pasuk Bet, when the Egyptians will see you, that's going to cause a problem because of the beauty which I've known about for a long time. So to put it very simply, according to the Midrashic explanations, Rashi is linking Hinei Na with Yadati. Now I know. So why do I know now? Answer number one or answer number two? According to the Peshat, and this is why it is the Peshat, it doesn't mean that. It means Hinei Na, behold, now we've got a problem. Semicolon. Yadati ki I know, I have known for some time that you're a beautiful woman, and now that is going to present a problem. I notice, which I didn't notice before, the trot, the notes, does actually link Hinei Na with Yadati, which might give a better... Um, indication that what we call the, sorry, what we call the Midrash is more uh, a correct reading than what we call the Peshat. Maybe it just occurs to me again, maybe that's why Rashi puts the Midrash first. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe that's too far. It is interesting, as I said earlier, that Rashi puts the Midrash first before the Peshat, which he doesn't normally do. Uh, I'm not quite sure why he does that, but it occurs to me maybe what I'm saying now could be a reason that the trot puts a hinei na together with yadati as a single unit, which fits the way that we explain the midrash work, not the way the Peshat works. Okay, I must just take a drink because that was a lot of talking. And don't say amen to a bracha over Zoom because you didn't hear the actual bracha. You just heard an electronic reproduction thereof. Okay, um, so if we thought that created politically incorrect problems, wait till we get to the next verse. And we're now at the next verse. Pasuk Yud Bet. I'm sorry, no, we haven't quite finished. We haven't quite finished the Rashi on Yud Aleph. Um, so in the Pshat, the third explanation, so we said that was, we're coming into Africa, and they're not used to a beautiful woman. And then Rashi says, similar to this is, Adonai Surana. Behold, now, my masters, please turn aside. And that comes from Perak Yotet, Pasuk of Bereshit. That is Lot talking to the angels who have arrived in Sodom. And Lot said to the angels, Behold, now, my master, please turn aside. Please come into my house because it's dangerous to stay outside. Why does Rashi bring this? Now we actually, we understand well why Rashi brings this, because that Hineina serves the same purpose as the Hineina in our pasuk, according to the third explanation. Hineina doesn't mean, doesn't lead straight on to Yadati, as I explained, this is the, the way the Peshat works. Just like, it, it just means Hineina, behold now, semicolon, we've got to do something. Similarly, when Lot says to the angels, Hineina, Adonai Tsurana, clearly, and more clearly than in our case, that's why Rashi brings it this account, uh, other example, because it's very clear, Hineina is not directly connected to the Adonai Surana. There's a semicolon after Hineina. Behold now, semicolon, my masters, please turn aside. And that Rashi brings to back up his shut interpretation of our verse, which says Hineina, semicolon, Yadati ki isha yafamara'at. So 
Now we go on to Pasuk Yud Bet. And we read, Bahaya, um, it will be, when the Egyptians see you, and they say, this is his wife, they will kill me, and there you, they will keep alive. Rashi said, no, Abraham understands that the mentality in this land is that when they have a married woman whom they want to take for themselves, so in a sense, you've got a choice. Uh, you could do one bad, well, one good thing you can do is leave her alone. But if you're not going to do that, you could either just take her while she's still married and commit adultery, uh, or you can kill the husband and then take her and never, she's a widow, but at least it's not adulterous. It would seem that according to the very perverted ways and the very um, perverted sense of morality, murder is less of a problem than adultery. And in that society, they would prefer to murder someone and rather than commit adultery with his wife. It could be that they think murderer is less of a problem than adultery, or it could be they think murder is a one-off act and adultery will be an ongoing act. Either way, Abraham says, they're going to kill me. By the way, I just thought of something which I forgot to say on the previous verse, but I can make, say it now. Um, none of you asked me that if we had the Midrash and the Midrash and the Pshat, and I explained to you what was lacking about the Midrash and why the Pshat sort of fit, fitted the text actually a little bit better. But you didn't ask, so why did we need the Midrash at all? Why didn't we just have the Pshat? So an answer to that is, this is not the only time that Abraham does this trick and says of Sarah, she is my sister, uh, so that she doesn't get taken away from him and he doesn't get killed. When was the other time that he did that? Anyone? Okay, it was with Abimelech, the king of the Pelishtim, where Abraham, uh, in the middle of Parashat Vayera, uh, just before Yitzchak is born, goes to stay with Abimelech because of a famine. He goes not to Egypt, but he goes to the land of the Pelishtim, and he does exactly the same thing. And he told Sarah to say that she's his wife. Uh, sorry, she's his sister, not his wife. Now, in the land of the Pelishtim, the Pelishtim was not in Africa. And the people of African origin, whom he would have seen in Egypt, they would not have seen in the land of the Plishtim. So I think it's the muscular David again, who says that that would imply a deficiency in Rashi's pshat explanation of Pasuk Yud Aleph. Rashi says, now that we're going amongst African people, they are not used to seeing a white woman, then there's a danger. But if that's the case, then there's no danger in the area of the Plishtim, and yet Abraham told the that is suggested to be the deficiency in that third explanation. Okay, back to Rashi on Pasuk Yud Bet. There is no Rashi on Pasuk Yud Bet, so we can go straight to Rashi to Pasuk Yud Gimel, where it says, "Imri na achoti at." I'm sorry, this is the punchline. I, I preceded. I, I preface this. He says to Sarai, "Please say you are my sister." in order that it will be good for me. Ba'avorech, for your sake, v'chaita nafshi, and my soul will live biglalech, because of you. So, simple pshat, simple, simple understanding. Abraham says that, Sarai, please say you're my sister. If you say you're my wife, which is the correct story, what's going to happen is they're going to kill me, because that's what Egyptians do. So please say you're my sister, and then they won't kill me. Now, it may well be that they will take you into uh, the harem, as exactly happened, but at least they won't kill me. Now, um, this is very, very, very hard to understand, and what Rashi is going to say makes it harder to understand still. Um, but I turn uh, to the explanation of Rav Hirsch. And Rav Hirsch is the best place to look for for an explanation of this matter, uh, because it looks like, sorry, the problem is it looks like Abraham is putting our, Sarah's well-being way, way below his. Sarah is going to be kidnapped. Um, it's very likely she's going to be raped, but at least Abraham will be okay. That doesn't sound good. That doesn't sound like our patriarch Abraham. Um, the Rav Hirsch explains that in order to protect Sarah from an even worse fate, in the ancient world, she needs a protector and she needs a quote brother 
that's air quotes, I think that's what young people call them, a brother to be her protector. And if she has a brother who protects her, then her fate will be less bad than if she's entirely on her own. So she's still going to get taken into Pharaoh's harem, and that's still going to be pretty bad. But at least having a protector on the outside will help her. And if she had no protector, she'd be entirely vulnerable. She would have no possible escape. So, says Rav Hirsch, that Abraham is saying, listen, it's going to be bad. It's going to be bad, whatever. But at least say you have a brother rather than a husband who's going to be a dead husband. Say you have a brother who's going to stay a living brother, and that will protect you. And therefore, when it says, and I'm not sure if it's Rav Hirsch, I didn't check, but I, I, it might be. It's not to be read as, they'll keep me alive for your sake. In other words, because they want you, they will do me the favor of keeping me alive, but rather they'll keep me alive and that will be for your sake. In order for me to stay alive, in order for me to protect you, I have to stay alive. So I'll stay alive, big laleich. More than that, yitavli ba'avoreich. It'll be good for me, but again, the same idea, for your sake. Now with this understanding, we can turn to Rashi, and Rashi has a short comment on the word Laman Yitavli Ba'avoreich Yitnu Li Matanot. They will give me presents. As indeed happened, because if we look at Pasuk Tet Zayin, it says exactly as Abraham predicted, Ula Abraham Heitiv Ba'avorah. For Abraham, they, it was good, they did good because of her. He had lots and lots and lots of presents. So exactly as he says, using the same words, um, and that's what he says is going to happen. It will be good for me. And in Pasuk Tet Zion, it says, same verb. So Rashi connects the two and says, how is it good for Abraham in Pasuk Tet Zion? Aye, they gave him presents. So Abraham, when he predicts, it will be good for me in Pasuk Yud Gimel, is referring to the presents. But with the understanding that I share with you from Rav Hirsch, we can perhaps understand a bit more about what Abraham is saying. It's not that he wants presence. It's rather that if he is of the status where they are going to reward him, that means he is the person who is protecting Sarai. So he wants to be the official protector, and he can only do that if she says he's his, she is his sister rather than his wife so that he can put himself in a situation where he can A, stay alive, and B, be esteemed by the Egyptians, which will enable him to speak on behalf of Sarai and protect her from an even worse fate. And that maybe, and maybe I'm stretching it a bit, you can take your choice, but maybe that's what Rashi means when he says he, they will give him presents, meaning they will establish him as somebody of value and of authority who will be protecting Sarai, and that itself will be a protection of Sarai. Okay, we have reached the end of Rishon. We have got to Shani. We've also got to 926, and that's probably a good point to pause. So I will say, uh, ah, Tali, hello, I can see you. Nice to see you all. You can all demute and you can say hello and good night. And it was a pleasure again learning. Next week, Emir Hashem, we will have another share. The week after is Cholamoed. We might still have another share. Maybe we'll talk about that next week. Uh, so thank you very much and uh, enjoy learning and uh, see you next week. Thanks, Ralph.